I'm sure a lot of you have played the, the word association game where someone says a word and then you say the first one that comes to your mind as soon as they say it. You know, so if somebody says George Washington, then you would probably say first president. Or if somebody said Leonardo da Vinci, you'd probably say Mona Lisa. Somebody said Martin Luther King Jr., you would say civil rights or the I have a dream speech. Somebody says the University of Alabama, you would say the devil. But when someone says Jesus of Nazareth, the one thing that he is known for is his death. He's known for his crucifixion. And so, for a lot of people, it's the cross that gets mentioned. Not everyone is familiar with it, of course. I was told a funny story of a Christian in Chicago who somebody walked up to her and said, why are you wearing a plus sign around your neck? You know. Didn't, didn't quite get that that was a cross. The central message of Christianity is the cross. It's the central message. It's at the heart. Some people get this wrong. Some people say, well, Christianity is about rule keeping. So, you know, we have our set of rules that we live by. Some people think it's that Christianity, the heart of Christianity is, well, you don't drink beer and bring a friend. But at the heart of, of Christianity is the cross. And the main message of Christianity is found in this text that we're going to read. And so here it is. Here, here's the main message of Christianity. Here is the foundation of our belief. It's the cross. And on the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath as our substitute. Jesus bore God's wrath as our substitute. Join with me as we read Matthew 27, and if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before Him. And they stripped Him and put a scarlet robe on Him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on His head and put a reed in His right hand, and kneeling before Him, they mocked Him, saying, Hail! King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lights. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Him, saying, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe in Him. 
He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, He is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Father, I pray that I would be like Paul this morning. Who knows nothing but Jesus and Him crucified. And Lord, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who believe, it's the power of God. So Lord, magnify the cross this morning. We are just like little kids. We get so easily distracted. We get so, we so easily run after other idols. We run after other things. We run after other lusts and passions and desires. But Lord, center us this morning on the cross. And Father, I pray that people who are far from You would see the cross and see what You did there and see how much You love them. And Lord, I pray that this morning that the message of the cross, the simple message of the cross would draw people to You. That, that there would be people even here in this room today who for the first time repent and give You control of their lives. Who trust You as their God. Who trust You as their Savior. Who trust You as their King. Do it, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we, as we look at this story in, in awe, we can't help but see there's some ironic things going on. I mean, here is the man who's being crucified as if he had done wrong, and yet he is the Son of God. And as we go through the, the, the narrative here, I, I find five ironies that, that I see here. And the first one is the man mocked as king is the king. The man mocked as king really is the king. And we see that starting in verse 27. The pagan Roman soldiers are mocking Jesus as the king of the Jews. It says that they, they put a scarlet robe on him. For a crown they twisted thorns and put it on his head. They placed a reed in his right hand for his scepter. And they took it and they beat him. They spat upon him. Other accounts tell us that they, they pulled parts of his beard out and mocked him. Well, they mocked him because in their eyes, surely this was no king. Just some insurrectionist 
who gathered followers, and now finally he had met the fate that he deserved. The irony, of course, is that Jesus really was the king. Jesus was the long-expected Messiah that the Old Testament foretold. The anointed king. He's the king of glory. He is the king over these mocking soldiers. He is the the king over the Jewish leaders who are putting him to death. He's king over the coward Pontius Pilate. He is king over the entire world that these people live in and mock him. But don't miss this. He's the king over you and king over me. The man who is treated as if he weren't a king truly is the king. Do we treat him as king? Do we give our lives to him as our king? Do we obey him as our king? Do we surrender everything and swear our allegiance to him as our king? Or do we join in with these pagan soldiers who mock him? Maybe not with our words, but with our lives. The first irony, the man mocked as king is the king. The second irony, the man who is utterly powerless is all-powerful. The man who is utterly powerless is all-powerful. They mock him and they take him out to crucify him. And the picture you get next as he's walking down the road is one of a person who has no power over what is happening to him. I mean, look at the, look at the story He couldn't even carry his cross. They had to get Simon, a man of Cyrene, to come and carry it for him. And that day, they would lead the criminals out to crucify them and they would give them to carry the cross beam that they would hang from. And just picture this. Jesus is so beaten. His back is so bloody. He is just so tormented and tortured that he cannot even carry the crossbeam. A piece of wood. Powerless. And it says they took him to a place called Golgotha, which is the Aramaic word for skull. And we don't know if, if they called it that because that's where a lot of people died. Or maybe there was something about that hill that. that made it look like a skull. And then later, the Latin language would... The, it's that same word for skull is where we get the word for Calvary. They took Him out to Golgotha. Now, people would not be crucified the way that we think that they would be crucified. When we think about crucifixion, we think you know on a hill far away. That it's isolated, it's a hill way outside. No one but these religious leaders and the people mocking Him are there. No, the place where they would crucify people was meant to perturb other people from committing the same crimes. And so, it wasn't just far away with just a few people around, but think shopping mall. Think the place, the center of commerce. They didn't just put Jesus in isolation on a cross somewhere. They hung Him up on Golgotha right in the middle where everybody could see Him. Where people could come through and say, I'm never going to do the crimes that these guys are committed of. 
And notice the, the mockery just continues. They mix wine with gall, which is it's, it's an herb that is bitter, and a lot of times it can be poisonous. They mix it together and they lift it up to him and just to mock him. They divided his garments. They put a plaque over his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. They executed him between two criminals. The man who actually wasn't a criminal. The irony, of course, this man who is utterly powerless to stop any of this is truly all-powerful. How do we see this? How do we see? How do we know that, that He is all-powerful? We see it in the resurrection. Because this man who is utterly powerless three days later will come marching out of a grave. That death could not hold Him. Even our ancient foe, death, could not have power over Him. He vacated a tomb. And He is the one who will one day return as a powerful King and reign over the earth, we're told in Scripture. The one that they saw as utterly powerless is all-powerful. The third irony that we see is the man who couldn't save himself saves others. The man who couldn't save himself saves other people. And you see this in, in starting in verse 39. People are scoffing at him as they go by. You said all these things. If you truly are the Christ, well, save yourself. If you truly are the Messiah, why don't you come down from the cross? But it didn't just stop with the people who were passing by, but the chief priests, the religious leaders were coming and they were saying, well, come down from the cross and we will believe you. You said you're the King of the Jews. Well, come down. Save yourself and we'll believe you. They mock Him further and they say, well, this man trusts God. Really, they're mocking Him. They don't believe that. They don't believe a word of it. But the irony behind it is they spoke better than they knew. They're saying, oh, He trusts God. Sure. Actually, He did trust God. Oh, He's the King of the Jews. Sure. Actually, He is the King of the Jews. But the irony behind all of this is that because Jesus didn't save Himself, because Jesus did not save Himself, He's able to save other people. The only person, listen, the only person who was ever crucified and had the ability to stop it was Jesus. We sing a hymn sometimes that He could have called 10,000 angels. I mean, here is the Son of God who created the wood that He's being crucified on. Who created the ground that these people are standing on. Who created the stars in the sky. Who created all things. And here He is being killed by His own creation. He could have come down from the cross. The irony of it all is, he, yes, He could have come down. But why didn't He? Why didn't He rescue Himself? Well, we see in Golgotha, or in Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, the chapter right before, we see Jesus praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. He doesn't come down because 
it was the Father's will that He stay up. Just as the Scripture that we read this morning in Isaiah 53, later on it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was God's will that He stay up and He was going to be obedient to the point of death. But why was it God's will? The Apostle Paul picks up on it and says this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And let me tell you today, if you're in Christ, you are not saved because He came down. You were saved because He stayed up. You were saved because He stayed on the cross and bore the wrath of God in our place. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just tell you, you stand condemned before a holy and just God. You've committed sinful acts that, that are in rebellion against Him. And you stand condemned before Him. And I, I know the question that a lot of people ask. They say, well, how could a loving God send people to hell? But I want to suggest to you this morning that, that maybe that's not the best question to ask. Because once you see this scene, and once you see the rest of Scripture, and you see the character of God, the question to ask is not, how can a loving God send people to hell? The question to ask is, how can a holy, just God forgive anyone? How can a holy and just God forgive anyone? And that is precisely why Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the cross to pay your penalty so that you can go free. He, being a righteous man, never sinning, goes to the cross, is treated like a sinner, so that you who are a sinner could be treated as if you had never sinned. So He offers forgiveness. He offers life with God as an adopted child of God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we hold out to you. I don't know what your impression is of Christianity. I don't know what your impression is of the church. Maybe it's a place full of hypocrites. Maybe it's a nice religion and well, I'll think about it when I'm closer to death, but let me tell you, what He is offering to you is life that never ends. Life that is here. Life that is now. He can save you. And the question for you this morning is, what are you going to do with this Jesus? What are you going to do with this Jesus? The fourth irony that we see is the man forsaken by God is the Son of God. In the following verses, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And at that moment, Jesus was more alone than anyone else in human history ever has been. Because in that moment, God Himself forsook His own Son. And Jesus cries out in agony, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Because at that moment, God turned His back on His Son. Not because the scene was just too bloody for God to look at. Not because no parent wants to see that. God turned His back on Jesus because at that moment, at that precise moment, 
Jesus had the entire weight of God's wrath put on His back. Put on His shoulders. The penalty that I have accrued, the penalty that you have accrued, the penalty that every man, woman, boy, and girl has ever accrued was on His shoulders. And God, being a just and holy God, turned away from it. He turned away from it. One Christian artist says it this way, Forever will I tell that for three hours Christ suffered more than any sinner ever would in hell. You think about how, how, how horrible hell is. And Jesus, the God-man, is enduring that hell, not just for one person, but for every human being who has ever lived. Some people thought He was calling down Elijah. Eli, Eli, in the Aramaic, actually does sound like He's calling Elijah. But what they miss is Jesus is basically quoting Psalm 22, which begins that same way. It begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But ends with the psalmist trusting that God is sovereign and in control. By crying out in agony, Jesus is trusting God. The irony here, of course, is this man who is forsaken by God is not just some criminal but it's God's own Son. It is God's own Son. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I will never have to be. God turned His back on Jesus so that He will never turn His back on you and me. Jesus bore God's wrath so that we would know God's grace. Jesus was treated as an outsider, so that you and I can be treated as insiders. Jesus was treated as a sinner, even though He was a saint, so that we who are sinners can be treated as saints. Jesus was treated as an enemy, so that God could treat us As sons and daughters. God was against His own Son so that for eternity, He could be for us. Something that I want you to see at the cross. Yes, we see God's love for us, but we see God's justice. We see God's justice because God said at the cross that sin has to be dealt with. That sin has to be punished. Our God is a just God. He's not, he can't just forgive people and let that be that. Sin has to be dealt with. And let me tell you, the worst blow that Jesus endured that day, it didn't come from the Roman soldiers as they mocked Him. It didn't come from Him having to carry the cross. It didn't come from them crucifying Him on a cross of wood. It didn't come as they drove the nails in. It didn't come as they stuck the spear in. The greatest blow that Jesus felt that day was the blow that came from God's justice. An old hymn says it this way, Tell me ye who hear Him groaning, was there ever grief like His? 
Friends through fear, His cause disowning, foes insulting His distress. Many hands were raised to bruise Him. None could interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced Him was the stroke that justice gave. Finally, the final irony we see is there in verse 50. The man who dies gives life. What do we see in the story? Jesus crying out in despair and dying. Other gospel accounts have some proclaiming it is finished. That's not a cry of relief like some of us think it is. It's not a cry of, oh, it's finally over. Thank goodness it's over. But it's a cry of victory. Jesus accomplished the task that He set out to do. He gave up His breath. Notice, notice the wording. He gave up His Spirit. He's in control this whole time. Even though He looks powerless. Even though He looks like they're killing Him. He's the one who chooses to give up His own Spirit. He is the one in control. And the irony is, through His death, Jesus gives life. How do we know it? Well, look at verse 51 right after He dies. It says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is what one, one commentator says. He says, The curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, and it's in the temple, was 60 feet high. It's not like a little window curtain. A 60 foot high curtain and 30 feet wide. No one was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the curtain except the high priest and him only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Torn in two signifies the removal of separation between God and the people. How do we know that Jesus gives life? Because the curtain was torn in two. It was basically God saying, hey, I am removing the barrier. The barrier is no longer there that stands between me and my people. You no longer have to go through a priest. You no longer have to go and, and do all these legalistic things to get to me saying, hey, you have access to me through my son Jesus. He's the one that gives life. He is the one that saves you. The curtain is torn in two. And He gives up His life so that we can experience life with the Father. And so don't miss this. Here is what we call the Gospel message. And it's simply this. You are way more sinful than you even imagined. If you, if you looked inside yourself today and you, you, you looked at the things you've done wrong and you come up with an estimation of yourself of either how good you think you are or how bad you think you are, you are far worse than you can even see. But, you are more loved by God than you could have ever dreamed. And it's at the cross that we see that. It's at the cross that we see Jesus dying 
for our sins. We're way more sinful than we thought that we were. And we see at the cross God accepting us as children. We see five ironies at the cross. The man mocked as king really is the king. He's king over all. The man who is utterly powerless is all-powerful. Not even the grave could hold him. The man who couldn't save himself saves other people. Jesus stayed on the cross to save us. The man forsaken by God is the Son of God. He is forsaken so that we will never be forsaken by God. The man who dies gives life. Jesus' death means that we can experience true life with God. The foundation of Christianity, listen, is the cross. It is the cross. And on that cross, Jesus bore God's wrath as our substitute. As we transition to a time of invitation, the invitation is simply this, this question. For Christian and non-Christian alike, or wherever you are on this journey, what will you do with this Jesus? What will you do with this Jesus? If you're here and you, you would say, yes, I'm a Christian, then for you, I would invite you to remember and celebrate His death. And maybe if you, if you like we often do, wander away like sheep, that you come this morning and just realize... No, this is what it's all about. And you recenter your life on this, on the cross, on Christ. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not sure, the question I have for you is what will you do with this Jesus? See Him. See all that He did for you. And cling to Him. And in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And I'm going to ask that you would do something a little strange. I'm going to ask that you would, as we sing, that you would step out of where you're sitting. And you would walk down here and you would just grab me by the hands. I'll be standing down front and just say, I want to know this Jesus. I want to know Jesus today. Would you bow with me? On that wretched day, the soldiers mocked him. Raucous laughter in a barracks room. Hell the king, they sneered while spitting on him. Brutal beatings on this day of gloom. Though his crown was thorn, he was born a king. Holy brilliance bathed in stunning loss. All the soldiers blind to this stunning theme. Jesus reigning from the cross. Awful weakness mars the battered God-man. Far too broken now to hoist the beam. Soldiers strip Him bare and pound the nails in. Watch Him hanging on the cruel tree. God's own temple down. He has been destroyed. Death's remains are laid in rock inside. But the temple rises in God's wise ploy. 
our great temple is the Son of God. Here's the one who says he can cares for others. One who says he came to save the lost. How can we believe he saves others when he can't come down from the cross? Let him save himself. Let him come down now. Savage jeering at the king's disgrace. But by hanging there is precisely how Christ saves others as the King of grace. Draped in darkness, utterly rejected, crying, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bears God's wrath alone, dejected. And He weeps the bitterest tears instead of me. All the mockers cry, He has lost His trust. He's defeated by hypocrisy. But with faith's resolve, Jesus knows He must do God's will and swallow death for me. And so, Jesus, we worship You this morning. Because You bore our sin. You were forsaken by God so that we would only know His love. That we would never know His wrath. Your blood has washed away our sin. And so Jesus, we come and say thank You. We come and worship You, Lord Jesus. Because You are worthy. You gave up Your life. You were obedient to the point of death. Even the worst kind of death on the cross. And Lord, as we think on Your death, I pray that You would draw people near to You. People who would say, I'm a Christian and I've been a Christian for years and have just kind of gone astray, Lord, that we would be drawn in. People who are here that say, I don't think I've ever trusted Christ would see what He's done and say, today is the day. I'm going to trust Christ today. Spirit, have Your reign in this place. We pray that You would draw people to You. In Jesus' name.